Before reading our next lesson, let me extend a word of greeting uh, to those who are worshiping with us this morning by way of live streaming. Uh, so many of our members, when they can't be present, uh, certainly tune in and watch our, our worship service uh, through live streaming. And many of our residents in uh, retirement communities in the Greensboro area do this as well. And we want you to know what an active and key part you are of the life of this uh, congregation. Our next lesson is from the 10th chapter of Acts. Uh, it may sound somewhat familiar to you if you were present in worship last week because uh, Nate Sell, one of our residents, preached on this uh, passage, which is a favorite of mine. Took a slightly different approach, but in a wonderful sermon. If you didn't hear that or weren't here for it, you may want to go online and see if you could hear it or view it. So again, we're in the 10th chapter of Acts, as written by Luke. Uh, let us give our attention to the Word of God. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian, Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God and with all of his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with a tanner named Simon and is in his house by the seaside. When the angel spoke to him and had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey, approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens opened up, and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures, and reptiles, and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and then suddenly the thing was taken up into heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of this vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them to you. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day he got up and went with them and some of the believers from Joppa to accompany him. The following day, they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him 
and falling at his feet, worshiped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, I am only a mortal. And he talked with him, and he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate or to visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now may I ask why you sent for me? And Cornelius replied, Four days ago at this very hour, at three o'clock, I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying at the home of Simon, a tanner by the sea. Therefore I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. So now all of us here in the presence of God are here to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. Then Peter began to speak. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you are aware of what this day is called, this Sunday, the 19th of January, on the Presbyterian planning calendar. I doubt that probably anyone but our church staff even uses the Presbyterian planning calendar. But on the various Sundays of the year, they recommend different areas to be studied or reflected on in worship or in Sunday school or in other things. And this day is called Race Relations Sunday throughout the church and also Criminal Justice Sunday. Maybe we're unaware of it now. Maybe it is not as emphasized as it once was. But I can assure you, growing up in the segregated South in Mississippi, whenever Race Relations Sunday came around, it was a test of the character of many of the leaders in the church. Because when clergy dared to address race relations or racial injustice or racial inequities in, in some way, they often risked their careers, if not their lives, in doing so. Back then, it was on the second Sunday of January every year, a part of the witness season. Now it's been moved to the third uh, weekend of January, probably to be nearer to the celebration of the Martin Luther King birthday, which is uh, tomorrow. But people may wonder, why are we still wondering about race relations? Haven't we become come far from those days? Is that still an issue in life and society? Of course it is. We are yet to arrive at that day that the dreamer king dreamed of when people would be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. It really doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, what your political preferences are. It doesn't matter what your gender is or your ethnicity, your income, or any other factor about you. You must realize that race is still an issue in the world and in America in particular. It is not far beneath the surface of any major issue that we're dealing with, from education to health care to criminal justice to warfare to affordable housing to employment, fair compensation for equal work. It's hard to go a day, much less a week, without dealing with some issue in the press that race relations, and often poor race relations, are not connected to in one way, shape, or another. 
To be sure, we have come far from the days of slavery in this country, but there's so much remaining work to do. We are still suffering the consequences of slavery, but that is the stain upon the soul of this land. It has been called by many writers, America's original sin, and we recognize that to be the case. So many of our founding fathers, and back then they were fa uh, fathers, but they had wonderful ideals and wonderful values which were incorporated into our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. And they affirmed such noble aspirations as the fact that all people are created equally by God, that all of our citizens have unalienable rights that are conferred upon them for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the tragic irony is that these wonderful words were often violated by attitudes and actions. Even most of our founding fathers had slaves themselves. And they released their views and their writings into 13 colonies, every one of which tolerated slavery to one degree or another. And yet people still ask, why are we still talking about race? Haven't we come beyond the day when that was such an issue. No, we haven't fully come beyond it. And that's why I've chosen to address it this morning. But what I am addressing is not just the issue of race relations, but the issue of why do we believe what we believe about race relations or about anything else. Without question, our Lord has committed his church and his followers to continue the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus began. That has been entrusted to us. And race relations is at the heart of improving human relations and international relations. And therefore, it is imperative that you and I, as people of faith, not only know what we believe, but know why we believe it. On what basis, on what foundation, do we stand where we do with respect to a lot of different issues in life and in society? My suspicion is, my certainty is, that most of us are very tolerant people, that we are open to welcoming people from different races and ethnic backgrounds into our places of work, into our churches, into our neighborhoods and schools. But more importantly than what we believe here is the question of why do we believe it as people of faith? What is the source of your values? Are they based on the Constitution of the United States? Are they based on the Declaration of Independence? Are they based on the 14th Amendment that says no state till should deny to any within its jurisdiction equal protection under the law? Do you believe what you believe because you're a good Republican, because you're a good Democrat, because it's a part of your party's platform? Do you believe what you believe because it was what you were taught by your ancestors, your grandparents and parents, because that's what your friends around you believe? Or that's the prevailing notion of most of your associates? Do you believe what you believe because of what the scientists say, what the historians say, the sociologists? Or instead, are your views grounded in the Word of God and based on the life and the lessons of Jesus Christ, who is the living Word? who incarnates the Word and demonstrates what you and I are intended to be and do. For those of us who are Presbyterian, we affirm that the Scriptures are our authority for faith and practice, for what we believe and for how we live. Is that really the fact? 
If it is the fact, then we find that quite often what we believe goes against the stream of culture, goes against the convictions of our friends and colleagues, goes against on some occasions even what the church may have to say. Christians believe or are charged to believe on what the scriptures are telling us about a host of issues. Now some issues are not directly related to scripture. It's hard to find a position based on the scripture, but you can certainly find principles and ideas that can be applied to almost any issue that comes down the pike. So that's what I'm asking today. Our task is to get us to think about why we believe as we believe. It's not intended to be a lesson as to what Danny Massey believes, although you could rightly say that this is my interpretation of what the uh, Bible is saying, and it is true that all of us, when we interpret Scripture, are subject to our own biases and blinders and prejudices. But I don't want you to affirm what I'm saying this morning because I say it, but rather you agree that this is what the Word of God may be teaching to us. So we go back to Scripture. And I have to confess to you that when I was a younger man, a teenager actually, and I began to investigate this, this issue, I went to the scriptures, but I went like so many people to con confirm my own prejudices, to look for support for things that I believed then. And when I got into the Word of God, I realized I could no longer stand where I stood previously. My mind and my heart was changed as a result of looking at the Word of God and the life of Jesus Christ. Now I realize that for many, if not most of us, or probably most of us here today, our forebears were in the South and many of them were slaveholders, as were my distant ancestors in Virginia. And it, it's a warped view of history to lay, lay all of our social blames at the feet of those people who had slaves back then, though we still consider or continue to suffer from the consequences of that sin. God can forgive our sin, but God, God, God does not remove the consequences of those sins. And we see day by day some of the consequences of the sins of our forebears. What we can say about our forebears is that they were God-fearing people and they went to the scriptures like I did as a young man, trying to justify their positions. Even the church justified it for a while. That's the good news. The bad news is they didn't listen to the whole witness of Scripture. They were not willing to consider those passages that were contradictory to what their friends or their country or their family were saying. Most of the people who tend to justify racial superiority or racial separation of the races go back primarily to the Old Testament in order to do this because God's people are commanded to come apart and be separate on occasion from others. But the bottom line is that the reason for these separations were not racial or ethnic, they were religious. When the people were entering into the land of Canaan, according to Deuteronomy 7, Moses is speaking to them and says, Do not marry any of them. Do not let any of your children marry them, talking about the people of the land, the Canaanites, because they would lead your children away from the Lord to worship other gods. And if that happens, the Lord will be angry with you and destroy you. Do this because you belong to the Lord your God. From all the peoples of the earth, he chose you to be a special people. 
So you see, the objection to mixing here was not on the basis of race or any other external factor. It was on the basis of these people of the land were serving and worshiping other gods. The Israelites were never a pure race from day one. Israel was always open to other people becoming a part of Judaism if they embraced the Jewish understanding of God and converted to that faith. There were some who may have objected to including others in the faith of Israel, in the community of Israel, but they are a a minority voice by a long stretch of the imagination. Bible scholars tell us that uh, probably the reason behind the inclusion of the book of Ruth in the Old Testament is that it shows how a woman, a Moabite, a Gentile, is incorporated into Israel's life and work and becomes the ancestor both to King David and to Jesus. Moses himself married an African woman. Many people don't realize that. But when they're going through the wilderness, he marries a woman from Cush, a Cushite woman. Cush is the ancient name of present-day Ethiopia, where nearly 100% of the people have black skin. Moses' sister, Miriam, and his brother Aaron criticize Moses for marrying this woman and give no basis for their criticism. But God approves of it and is so angry with Miriam and with Aaron that Miriam is struck down with leprosy until she is cured by God. And one commentator I was reading this week said, Isn't it ironic that this is the punishment for Miriam? If she was feeling superior to the Cushite woman because she had a lighter hue in her skin, then God gave to her a really light skin hue with leprosy. Her skin became snow white, Numbers 12 reminds us. So maybe she could experience firsthand what it's like to be discriminated against simply on the basis of your skin and its color. And we need to remember, when we're looking at the Old Testament in particular, that what we see there is often descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's not telling us what we ought to be or do. It is describing what was for good or for ill. And we know that when Jesus came along, he freely challenged and questioned many of the assumptions and many of the ideas and practices of Israel of old. It's crystal clear when we turn to the Gospels that Jesus went out of his way to relate to those people who were excluded by others for whatever reason. People who were rejected because of religious or cultural stereotypes. He spoke to women, even spoke to women in public, which was considered anathema by Orthodox Jews. He sat down and ate with tax collectors that was considered traitorous to his nation. He dared to love non-Jews and said that God did too. He reached out and he touched lepers, which was considered morally and medically inappropriate. He even spoke kindly of that mixed breed of people that were hated by Jews from both the North and the South, the Samaritans, and he made a Samaritan a hero in a great parable that he told, the Good Samaritan, almost a contradiction in terms in the days of Jesus. He even tells his followers that they should emulate this Samaritan. So there's no question but that Jesus associated with, he helped, he valued, he loved, and he served all people 
and he recommended that his followers do the same. And what is more, when his followers began to record the scriptures in the New Testament, they remind us of some of these central truths, such as you cannot say you love God if you don't love your neighbor. You say you love God whom you cannot see and you refuse to love a neighbor who you see. No, you're a liar, is the way the New Testament puts it. It tells us that we cannot conceivably boast about anything except the fact that God loves us, despite the fact that we do not deserve the love of God. But only in that can we boast. Now, all of these ideas in Old and New Testament came to speak to me when I was dealing with this issue personally. There is no passage of Scripture that affected me more than the passage dealing with Cornelius that we heard this morning. I think I was drawn to it when I was younger simply because I had a grandfather named Cornelius and I always thought it was a strange name, but here was another Cornelius, so I got interested in his story. But it's helped me, I think, to crystallize the position of God when it comes to racial, felt racial superiority. This Cornelius was a Gentile. He was an officer in the Roman army that was occupying Palestine at that time. This little piece of information would not have escaped any listener or reader to the book of Acts in its early days. He was a Gentile. He was a Roman. But he also was a man who lived a life that honored God. And he tried to do the right thing. He was a man of charity, a man of convictions, a man of prayer. And Peter comes to understand through the vision that he has that he cannot possibly label anything unclean that God considers clean. God has shown me, says Peter, that I must not consider any man unclean or defiled. I now realize it is true that God treats everyone on the same basis Whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, no matter what race he belongs to. That's the way the, today's English version of the Bible puts it. Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, went on to say even more that God is made of one blood, all the nations of the earth. Paul said that. The scriptures affirmed it before medical science ever realized that that was the truth, that all races share the same blood types. God made of one blood, all people. There is no option for the followers of Jesus Christ but to make bold witness for racial tolerance and racial justice, for racial understanding and racial appreciation, for racial harmony and acceptance, for equal justice and equal opportunity under the, under the law. This witness must be demonstrated not by simply the pretty words that we speak or what we say in worship, but the attitudes that we exhibit and the actions that we take among our friends and among our community. Like our forefathers of old, we can have the pretty words, but sometimes they're denied by our practice. It's not hard to hear this message. It's hard to abide by scripture when you find that it's going against your preconceived notions as to what is right or true, but that is the calling for you and me who say that scripture is our authority as is the life and the lessons of Jesus Christ. And yet the continuing reality is that in many of the places where we work and serve, in many of our churches across this land, in our circle of friends, 
that they are largely divided along racial lines. And all of this is testimony to the fact that we still have a long way to go, you and I and all of us together. A sad footnote is, and it's no less true today than it was when it was first said about 30 years ago, that the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. That's a sad reality. God calls his people in the church and Jesus calls his followers to commit themselves to loving all people and not letting external barriers that we may construct keep us from loving those people as we love God. And may God enable us to see in all people what God sees in them. May we look at others through the lens and through the eyes of Jesus Christ and not through any stereotypes that our society or anyone else may provide. We are to relate, relate to all people on the basis of the Word of God and the life of Jesus Christ, His Son, our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.